know, we all aware that there was a big crash in 
now all goes into the melting pot, and out comes the glorious America with its own values. And you are living with the satisfaction that you made a contribution to it. But it wasn't particularly significant to remain Jewish, recognizably Jewish, or recognizably Italian, or recognizably Irish. It was embarrassing to some extent. And the dream was that the children will become real Americans. Uh, there were other factors for the crash, without any question. There, you didn't have the education facilities. When I started out, when I was young, and I started out as a rabbi in public life, I was very critical of the leadership of the past generations, that they didn't build yeshivas, they didn't build day schools, they didn't build institutions that we have today. And when I got a little older, a little wiser, a little more experienced, I realized that they were facing enormous problems that made it very difficult for them. Uh, we didn't have the affluence that we had after World War II in the Jewish community. Um, the people, most the immigrants, uh, did not have the know-how and the skills and, and uh, the kind of uh, understanding and education that is necessary to build institutions, to build educational institutions. It wasn't that easy. Um, so we didn't have these institutions, so kids went to Talmud Torah. And I still remember when I started out in public life, uh, the Talmud Torah was still very good. I remember applying for a job, I don't remember if I got it or not, probably not, otherwise I would remember, um, in the Talmud Torah, an afternoon school, where they had classes five days a week, Sunday morning, and every weekday, from 3.30 till about 6.30 in the afternoon. It's almost as many hours as your modern Orthodox day school has in the Muda College. And I remember the top class was learning Gemara Matosis. For those who have studied, know what that means. It's very unusual. But nothing came out of it. And uh, of course, um, it is very difficult to teach the Mother Kodesh after you've spent uh, all day till 3, 30 or 4 o'clock in the public school. Right? And um, I, I always suggested, although it may sound a little bit radical, uh, America, of course, there's freedom of religion, there's no question about it, and uh, religion is respected. But uh, I've always submitted that the public school, in its essence, is almost as atheistic as the infamous communist state school, uh, uh, public school in, in Russia. Now, in Russia, they were a little more uh, crass and a little more obvious. There's a story that uh, I heard from somebody that what they used to do with the little kids in the middle of the summer when it's very hot, and the kids were sitting there and were sweating away, there was no air conditioning, and the teacher said to the children, would you like ice cream? Yeah, that's of course, the child doesn't like ice cream, especially that time of the year. And uh, they said, well, why don't you pray to God? Ice cream. They stopped praying to God and bought no ice cream for the kid. And then they said, how about asking Comrade Stalin for ice cream? 
And they said, come and dine with ice cream. And the doors open up and the trays with ice cream came in. And this was deliberate you know, effort to uproot religious faith. Now, nothing like this ever happened in America. But if you go to public school, and if you, until 4 o'clock, the, the essence of your education is that this happens because of this, and this happens because of this, and this happens because of this, and there is a cause, a natural cause for everything. By the time 4 o'clock comes around, there is no room for God anymore. But everything has been explained already naturally. And the God that is unnecessary is as impossible as a God that doesn't exist. So in a more subtle, insidious way, the basic secular assumption that all of reality should be explained in natural terms is just as atheistic as the obvious attempt of a communist to offer religion. They um, tell the story of the, um, the boy from Talmud Torah coming home, and the father asked him, he wasn't so terribly learned himself, but he wanted to know what the kid was learning in Talmud Torah. He says, what did you learn in Talmud Torah today? He said, I'll tell you an interesting, fascinating story. The Jews went out of Egypt, and as they're going out, they're near the Red Sea. They look around and they see the Egyptians are pursuing. Very great danger. So uh, Moses called out his engineers and they built a pontoon bridge across the Red Sea and the Jews crossed. And the moment they were across the, the, the water and they saw the Egyptians were entering, coming on onto the bridge, he called out is the dive bombers, and they bombed the bridges, and all the Egyptians were destroyed. The father was not exactly a Talmud Chacham, but it didn't quite sound right to him. He said, are you sure that, that this is what the teacher told you, this is what happened? He gets a little grass and says, Dad, no. But if I would tell you what the teacher told me, you wouldn't believe it. You see, and this is, the kind of sort of thing that the Talmud Torah was vis-a-vis the teachings of all-day public school. And it was almost impossible adding on to the fact that the teachers that became teachers in those days were not the most competent teachers to say the least and certainly didn't have the language. When I say language, I don't mean just uh, the ability to speak English. But the language, the contemporary language with which to communicate with these youngsters. So it was a pretty uh, stacked, stacked battle against I wish they didn't have too much uh, chance. In addition, through the logistics of Jewish living in America, in those days it was very difficult. Shabbos was an enormous obstacle. I mean, today we have Kaufman, we have laws, and we have all kinds of things, and there are many places that don't work more than five days a week anyway. It's, we get to Hanetza, like we say in English, there are possibilities today. Didn't exist in those days. The sweatshops, old timers told me when they came here as young people, after World War One, whatever, they used to take these jobs in the sweatshop. Friday afternoon, when they told the boss, especially in the short days, you know, in the winter, we have to leave at Shabbos, 
They said, you don't have to come back. And Monday morning, they had to look for another job. And there were people who literally went from shop to shop every week in a different place to work. That was Shabbos night. Cashless is not like today. You can come into some kind of a, a, a supermarket in Iowa where they've never seen a Jew in their lives. And you go through the shelves and you see if it's a cookie with an OU and they don't even know what they're selling. And you can make it unreal for yourself somewhere out in the boy boys there and, 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 and survive. In those days it wasn't possible. And you took along uh, some sorghum sandwiches or a salami. And if, you, if the guy was a chazal, he finished the salami the first night and nothing left for the rest of the week. Right? And it was very difficult. There's no place to go in, there's no place to do anything. And these things are very, very difficult. We can't appreciate today, with all the religious conveniences available to us, what that generation had to endure in order to preserve Shmirat HaMitzvah to, to, to observe them. So there were many, many things that conspired against, uh, against uh, the sort of thing. Of course, once you hit university, in those days, the, the conflict between religion and science and, 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 the, and the new ideologies was very acute and the solutions were not readily available. There were not people available who mastered both disciplines and were able to confront the issues in a meaningful way. People attended universities, they heard things they never heard before because of criticism, evolution, the geological age of the earth, and so on and so forth. That the, sound, that, that the parents and the, uh, the religious teachers could not deal with at all. And all this, of course, pulled away a lot of Jews and people. But even with all that, I wasn't totally satisfied in trying to analyze the situation. And what I want to present here tonight is what I call conflict in ethos questions. What I want to point out is that there are certain underlying uh, intellectual assumptions in American culture. And when I say American culture, I don't mean today's culture. I don't mean the bad culture the total breakdown of morals and ethical values. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the good American. It was the good type of the American dream, as they said. You know, the little house with the 2.3 children and then the dog and the two cars and everything is nice and fine, going to church on Sunday and, and being nice and, and family life, the kind of thing that uh, President Bush preached. Right? I'm talking about that America. And I want to show that taking this America, there are certain underlying cultural trends, I call ethos features of American life, that are not somehow that, that, that are different and opposed to some of the things that Judaism assumes. And therefore, this is very subtle. It's not something that is spelled out and written out in a textbook. But it's there, it's in the atmosphere, it's part of the general education, it's in the chinuch, and in everything that, that pervades the culture and the civilization. There are certain basic assumptions that are very much different. There are some that are very similar. You read some of the apologetic literature that was written in the earlier part of the century, a lot was written by Jews to show that Americanism and Judaism is high no -hands. 
same thing. Alright? And don't we have the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia? Freedom for all the citizens. I mean, we, we do have a lot in common. There's no question about it. I believe that the profound sympathy in the American people, in spite of the anti-Semitism and all the things that you hear and see, but in spite of that, there is a grassroots sympathy for Israel, and it is based on, I think, very profound cultural affinities between between Americanism and Judaism. Uh, for instance, the value of a life. There are two cultures, I think, in spite of all the crime that happens, all the killing, but this is the bad America. I'm talking about the good America. The good America doesn't sleep and is glued to the television when a kid falls into a shack and people try to rescue it. There's only one other country in the world where this happens, that's Israel where people hang on the radio, one person is captive. One person might have gotten killed. In America, you have it too. In the good America, you have that. A tremendous appreciation of the value of a human life. And you share this. There is no other country in which there's such abhorrence for war and the fear of war because some people will get killed on earth. And you have it here and you have it in this not even the other democracies of the West, and European democracies. The idea that it is a system ruled by law and not by men. Yikov Hadin is the law, as Talmud says. It's the law. It's not the people. You don't favor the poor, and you don't favor the rich. Justice. Now we know it doesn't always work true. But at least in the culture, there is that strong support for the concept of an objective system of justice without regards to rank and, 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 and family standing or what have you. And so on and so forth. I don't want to dwell too much on it. There, there is a lot of, of compatibility and similarity. But there are differences. On this I'm going to focus tonight. I want to show how these differences really affected the education of young people and how they willy-nilly found themselves torn between two different value assumptions living in the two civilizations of Americanism and Judaism. And this was, this theory, Hobbes, I'm sure, 
No, 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 don't worry, I don't need any, any more of it. Uh, Hobbes uh, developed the theory uh, without, I'm sure he didn't know Kirchhoff, but he developed that theory uh, that people would literally kill each other. It was based on the concept of social contract and, and, and the state of nature and so on. I don't want to go into this. But essentially, he felt that all of sovereignty has to be uh, um, uh, given over to the sovereign. Now, that the people have to give up all their sovereignty, otherwise they would kill each other in any dispute, and that becomes the government, and the government takes over and they rule. But that wasn't the dominant theory in the West. A man like John Locke, for instance, who believed in minimal government, that became the credo of liberalism. That government is only there to make sure that the criminals don't crime and that the highways go and so on and so forth, but the rest leave as much as possible to the people. All right? And that became the major credo of Western of Western culture. Again, it doesn't work completely as time went on. Thank you very much. Now I have to drink it because otherwise it's not nice when you do it again. It didn't work because as time went on and the society became more complex, more and more regulations had to set in. And today you have a network, as many political philosophers have pointed out. The average person today is more regulated than the serfs in the Middle Ages. The serfs did his job, he gave the balabos, the laws, whatever he had to give them, and then he went home and felt it. Here you go home, and hey, wait a minute, the government doesn't finish with this. You know, there are rules and regulations and licenses and stop signs and and then they drive. And there are hundreds in Washington, hundreds of the regulatory organizations that regulated this and regulated that. And, and, and with white powers, it's one of the ongoing problems in, in government today where, where legislation has to be the, the, the borderline between vague legislation and specific legislation and the power given to, uh, uh, to uh, regulatory authorities in environment and in, 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 in trade and in all kinds of things. It's enormous. The, 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 the idea that we are really free in a democracy to do what we want is practically an illusion. I mean, there's no comparison to the dictatorship and political uh, France, but the Lockean dream of minimal government and a total, a total freedom that the person can express themselves anywhere they want really doesn't exist. And when it does exist, unfortunately, it's not so good. So, uh, but nevertheless, this idea of freedom is very persuasive and very uh, pervasive in Western civilization. And it's carried over into ethical concepts, into ethical concepts. A very few people in America knew about the Manuel Kant, the famous German philosopher. <coughs> but his basic premise in ethics, which became sort of the Bible of Western ethics, it is the concept of autonomy. And if you hear any lecture today by a reform rabbi, you will hear, you're right, and this is nice, and it would be nice if Jews would be more Jewish, if we perform more mitzvahs, it's all right. But we believe in autonomy. 
and they are ready to sacrifice the discipline of Judaism for autonomy. And autonomy really is the root of Western ethics as formulated by Immanuel Kant, who said that if I do anything because anybody tells me to do it, I don't care whether it's the police or whether it's the government or whether it's God himself, it is not an ethical act. It is only ethical when I make that decision. And that, as I said, became very important. If you buttonhole anybody in the street and you ask him, what is more moral, what is more ethical, what is greater? If you follow the laws, because somebody legislated the laws, or because you, in the goodness of your heart, realize that this is the way you have to go, not to steal, not to kill, and do all these wonderful things. There, it's a knee-jerk reaction. There's no question that the answer will be, oh, the person doesn't have a free will. That is the greater person. Without any question. And from this, we have some very nice uh, popular sayings. Like one, I think one of the most popular uh, uh, phrases in American living is, which I'm sure you have heard, I'm sure you have used. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Huh? And this is rooted in that concept that there is a basic basic human dignity is freedom. And freedom means autonomy to make my own decisions. All right? And if you went into the little red schoolhouse, you would see it in action. Beginning with nursery. You ever walk into a little nursery of, today I, I can't keep count anymore. In my days it was kindergarten the first grade, then became nursery, kindergarten first grade. Now it's pre-nursery, nursery, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, pre-A1. <laughs> and pretty, pretty soon it's going to be prenatal. <laughs> but anyway, so in any one of these, you know, little bits of us sitting there, you simply walk in there, the teacher, now children, what are we going to do today? Oh, she knows darn well what they're going to do and she's going to steal them what they're going to But they sit there and they vote. <laughs> it's a five-year-old boat. What are you going to do today? Huh? This is inculcated from early childhood. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. You make your own decisions. Now let's take a look at Judaism. In Judaism, we find a statement in the Talmud that sounds utterly absurd to Western ears. The Talmud says, Godel Greater is he who does something because he's commanded than the person who does not I know some will tell me it doesn't mean to be great, it means more reward. The portions say that if you're told to do something, there's a natural reaction. You don't want to do it, and therefore it's a lot harder. And as in Sarah you get reward for effort, there's more effort when you're commanded. I don't see that to be the whole statement. I'm profoundly convinced that what the sages meant was more than the question of reward. What they meant was that indeed, greater, from the religious point of view, greater is the person who is commanded to do something, 
then one would not command it, and this is quite evident from our Talmudic literature and from our commentators, that a person should do even those mitzvahs which are seemingly so logical that the, in, in the words of the Talmud and the Midrash, that the Yetzirah and Olam, even the, the evil inclination and the, the, the nations of the world concede that this is right, we should do it because God commanded us to do it. There is a merit, bedavka, not to do it because I want to do it, because I recognize the greatness of this commandment, but to do it because God wants me to do it. And it's very interesting when the Maral, the Maral Matar, who was a profound thinker and a prolific writer on Jewish thought, and certainly cannot be accused of obscurantism, was very much opposed to the concept of Tom Amitzvah, to find reasons for every mitzvah. There are two trends in the Jewish history of Jewish thought. And he criticized Maimonides, who did believe in Tom Amitzvah. And the whole issue is about uh, a certain mission in Barfaz, the mission of the uh, that uh, if somebody prays that uh, we have the law that if you want to take uh, the little birds, you have to send the mother away. And if somebody says, I'm doing this, God gave this mitzvah because he has compassion on the mother bird, and one of the explanations given to Talmud is because he's trying to develop a theory of divine mercy when he really has to do the mitzvah because it's a divine command. And the Maral roots himself in that statement. And he says, no, don't look for Tama He found all kinds of explanations for Jewish suffering, for redemption, for exile. He was a philosopher by excellence. Mitzvahs don't find reasons. And I think that the main motivation in the Maral not to look for reasons for mitzvahs is because the more reasons you have, the more you do it because you like it. Because if you have a reason, ah, it's worth it out. Very nice, very nice. Then you do it because it's very nice. You shouldn't do it because it's very nice. You do it because God wants you to do it. Call the Hamitzuvahos. Hamitzuvahos. Why? What's the sense of it? The sense is very simple. What is the ultimate religious experience in Judaism? Let's take the greatest Jew. What was he called? Now it's very difficult to find the greatest Jew and you're playing with fire if you take biblical figures and you want to say, who is the greatest? But I think it's pretty safe to say that most
that whatever we do, we must know what we're doing. We're from Missouri, we've got to be shown. And we do it out of our own free will, like I said. And that bounce comes. And when a kid comes 4 o'clock in the town of the or even today in a day school, because a culture is all pervasive. It's what you read, it's what you see on television. It's, it's more than anything specifically taught in the classroom. That's why I call it the ethos, the underlying ethos. And you come and you tell the kid, well, this, I can't explain it. You've lost it. You can't explain it. And if you can't tell it, no sense. It's very hard. It's very difficult. Because there has to be some level of acceptance in, 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 in any ideology, in certain humility. We are told we are regulated. Right? We are regulated. We are regulated from cradle to grave. Uh, with great detail. The halacha is very specific and tells us what to do. Mm -hmm. I always say, you know, the, the Gentiles have a mitzvah. They have a mitzvah on Christmas, they have a Christmas tree. Right? So what do you do? If they're very well to do, they buy a very Christmas tree. If they're not so well to do, they buy a early Christmas tree. If they're less well to do, if they have an old Christmas tree preserved from last year, they put it away somewhere in the garage, and it's in good condition. So I'm not going to go see, you pull it out, you put it out. I'm fine. I know in Washington they always make a big Simmons, the president has a big day, pull it out with bullets and some ice. Just imagine if we would have such a mitzvah. Right? We would have, first of all, a whole mitzvah on the tree. And that would be a halacha, how tall it can be. It can't be over 20 amas because you can't see it, and how many branches it should have. And if you can put on electric lights, you can put regular candles. And a, and, and a tree hagozel, if it's stolen, it's not good. A tree hagozel, it's no good. With toysmas and mashor, with ashokonor. Imagine, imagine how we would treat such a thing. I go, it was a terrific time. That's the level of regulation. On the other hand, how beautiful it is, how structured we are, how meaningful every religious experience is, every holiday. Sometimes a little extra work, it's true. And a lot of times it costs a little more money, but when you sit down and talk about you have you have something. There's something to show your children, there's something to your grandchildren. It's it's a lot of and this, uh, this acceptance of authority brings with it authority figures. Authority figures. Right. You have, first you have father and mother. I mean, I myself of a European background. I came here as a young person, very young person. And I heard for the first time, hey, Jack, I turned around, who calls him? The son calls the father. Hey, Jack. I, I shut up. No? I come into the class. Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith. Here's Mr. Smith. Call the teacher by name in Europe? Never heard of him. Hey, Mr. Teacher. By name? 
authority figures, the whole American culture, the Constitution, the whole resentment against royalty and appointed status figures is part of the American Constitution. And we have, we have Kibbutz Arbein, and we have Kibbutz Rav, and Rebbe. Of course, any authority has to come along with the, with the authority figures. And the American civilization suffers greatly from this, that no respect for authority figures because of the culture. And that undermines the whole authority. Because without authority figures, you can't have authority. They have to be figures that represent that authority, who are respected just for what they are, not merely on the merit system. There are better ones, there are worse ones. There are better parents, there are worse parents. Kibbutz Avaim and Shemalor doesn't make any difference whether your parents are the ideal parents that you would draw on a blueprint, or whether they are the average parents or not so good parents. Kibbutz Avaim, unless some very, very rare exceptions. Amen. And uh, respect for a teacher. I don't know, I remember when my kids were going to school, this is my home stories to the teacher. Who was right? The teacher was right. As soon as they left the room, we were just plots when we left for some of the stupid things that teacher may do. But not in front of the children. Children know it's a teacher. We rectify the problem. You want private lesson, we tell them individually what's right and wrong. But there has to be the habits for the authority figure. And that has never really been the case in America. Never really been the case in America. And it's all part of that autonomous. The, the, the leader is, why was a man like, like Truman so popular in those days? Because you could stand there and slap him on the back. Or when his daughter was, got a bad criticism in the, when she was trying to sing, and then she got a bad critique in the newspapers, he got up and son of like, like any, any guy that any father of his daughter was insulted. Ah, he's one of ours. Down to earth. And this is the, 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 the popularization or the deauthorization <laughs> of authority figures. It's all part of the problem. But us, they can't work that way. And it's very hard to instill children with a sense of their parents for parents and for Abed and for Abonim. It's very hard because the American culture isn't isn't that. And this is what they get on television and in the comics and the newspapers and in the whole in the whole environment of respect. I will there are many others, but I don't want to take up that much time. I will just deal with one more. The American dream was based on the notion that you have your faith in your hands. And the old adage, I think, was Emerson, who said 80%, uh, 20% inspiration, 80% perspiration. The ideal, the frontier philosophy, that you can make it if you just roll up your sleeves and you're prepared to work, you can make it in America. It was part of the open, wide open West where people went to virgin lands, discovered gold mines, discovered fertile fields in which they could produce, establish industry, the Horatio Alger type of story. You came, you come here with nothing, you start a little uh, pushcart, a little with a pushcart, uh, a, Nic a Nicola Stickle, a pickle there, 
and then you go out, and from this you become a pickle empire, you become a millionaire. That was the American dream. It's wide open. And all you have to do, and the people who didn't make it, were looked upon as, either he was lazy, or stupid, or Ashnamala. I don't know exactly how to define the, the differences between them, but we somehow get the sense what it means, okay? I said, what's the difference between a Shlemiel and a Shlemazel? Uh, if, if the waiter goes by and spills the soup on the guest, the waiter is the Shlemiel and the guest is the Shlemazel. Uh, but anyway, so there was this, this kind of, of sense that if you want to make it, you can make it. And one of the very popular phrases that was associated with this kind of concept is, God helps those who help themselves. Now, what does that really mean? What it really means is, come on, like the dollar bill, in God we trust. Who are you kidding? The dollar bill. You've got plenty of those. It's sort of, I wouldn't even call it lip service in the past. Because it's beautiful to have a religious ceremonial. Oh, it's wonderful to start Congress with a prayer, sometimes by a priest, sometimes by a minister, sometimes by a rabbi. Now we've got uh, three, four different kinds of rabbis, so sometimes we can get more, more hearing than uh, the other religions. Because we're, we're beautifully split up so that we have plenty of uh, diversity. And this will be the subject of your next uh, lecture. So, uh, uh, it's very nice to christen a battleship of champagne, and everybody I love when we're getting these uh, invocations. We ship them for glazed oil, you know, those understand these are very interesting. Amen, and the amen is goodbye. Not an iota of religions remember that. And the Congress goes and they every day their their shtick and their shikhas and their bounce checks and their and their, their neighbors. Gorgeous, nothing happened. But everybody stood bowed and amen. It's nice, religion is a nice decoration. But deep down there is that conviction, the frontier conviction, that it is sweat equity. You do it. And if you don't do it, it's not because God didn't give you anything. Not because they didn't have any muscle, whatever that means. It means you were lazy, stupid, and a mother. Now, to some extent, this was historically smashed with the crash, when people of enormous talent <coughs> stood in line or participated in that program. What's the w, uh, WPA. WPA programs? Actors. Writers, intellectuals, highly skilled people were standing in line and, and digging ditches and, and repairing roads. So it wasn't said about push it, you only want. You tell us what you want. Sometimes the economy goes down. There are people now, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people out there looking for a job and, and would work for half price and do anything. So stop the recession. All right. So even from a secular point of view, this theory is a very poor theory, which doesn't hold water. But it was very pervasive in American culture, the racial algebra, the ability to make it yourself. You just go ahead and do it, and you can make it. And what do we teach 
children. Let's go back to nursery, kindergarten, pre-A1, and all these beautiful little classes. What do you hear the teacher instilling to the children? Self-confidence. You can do it. If you only want, you can do it. Don't wait, well, not right in the beginning, but eventually don't wait for father and mother, don't wait for this, don't for that. You can do it! And psychologists will tell you this is a terrific thing. We don't argue with it. They have self-confidence. They have self-reliance. You can do it! That is very strong, powerful element, value, and ethos, an undercurrent of an ethos in American civilization. What did we find in Judaism? How did you make out? Very well. Baruch Hashem. Thank God. You rolled up your sleeve. You worked. Moshe Rabbeinu, when he said his farewell speech to Sefer Dvar, and the one thing he was worried about, the Jews will come to the soil, they start building, they start creating, and they will say, They will say, it's my strength and my might that it offers. That was his greatest fear. That's the beginning of the end of religious commitment. I can do it myself. Probably the ultimate figure of this type of faith and trust was Yosef. And probably this is why he was called in our tradition the only one of the biblical figures who got the title of Tzaddik. Is Moshe Rabbeinu, is David Amela. Yosef is Yosef Hatzad. Just imagine, he is a man who is sold into slavery by his own brothers. Right? In the house of Potiphar, of course, with his talents and his wisdom, he gained, he became the top executive. In, in Potiphar's establishment. He is falsely accused of trying to entice Potiphar's wife. He's thrown in the dungeon <coughs> in jail, innocently. And I assure you, the jails in those days were nothing comparable to a, a minimal security prison in Pennsylvania somewhere. No comparison. And there he becomes the boss. And the whole story with the Sahamashka, Sahofa, with the two servants of Pharaoh, who went to jail. And the day comes, he's brought out of jail. A very liberal government takes a jailbird and uh, he becomes the vice king of, uh, of uh, <coughs> Egypt. Very good. He's called out, he has a tremendous chance. He has a skill. He interpreted dreams, he interpreted the dream of the Sahamashka and the Sahofa. And now Pharaoh is in trouble. The greatest, most powerful man in, in, in Egypt who can make and break him. And he needs his services. And Pharaoh calls him in and he says, and he gets dressed and he gets a haircut and he shaves. 
changes his prison clothes. I suppose they allow him to do that when he comes in. What would anyone do coming in there? Before he would go to panel, he would go to a professional resume maker, don't he? And write up his resume, his biography. I have done this, and I have done that, and I have done the other thing, and I have a degree from here, and a degree from there, and come into power. Such a pile of documents. He comes in, yes, the power system. I heard about you, that you have a certain skill. What does Joseph say? It's not mine. Hashem Yam God will answer your question. Now, Anna, you have this opportunity. You're the only applicant for the job. It's the top job in the country. Not me, Hashem. That is the very antithesis. And the contrast is beautifully des uh, described typologically. If you ever came across the famous essay, essay by the Rav, and the lonely man of faith, when he describes the two Adams, the majestic Adam who, who goes out into space, who conquers universes, who gets control of the natural forces, who is proud and, and, and decisive and displays his great skills and his great wisdom and his great intellectual acumen. And then you have the, the, the Adam II, the existential man, who is worried. Is he really capable? What is the purpose of his life? Who stands bowed before the Lord? Help me, I'm lonely. I cannot exist. What does, the, what does life mean altogether? What does the universe mean? What role do I play in this universe? How can I make it in this world without you? The true man of faith. And that was Yosef Hatzal. Right? And here you find such a crass difference between, look at what is going on now, elections in America. Elections in America. You take a man who is supposed to become the leader of almost 300 million people, and you put him on a platform and he stands there. I am great and I am terrific and I can do the job for you. The other one is a nah, the other one is incompetent. What kind of society is it? Of course, that's a bad America. But it's a result of the good America. Oh, we like him. He shows self confidence. He knows what he's doing. Do you think anyone knows what they're doing? Do you know anyone has the answers to the dilemma of America? God says the help whoever wins that they'll find out something at least. Uh, this Perron, whatever the name is, at least he's honest. He admits he knows nothing at this point. I think people appreciate that. Because deep down they know that nobody knows nothing. He's at least honest enough to admit that he doesn't know anything. But you have to parade as if it's all in your hands. Man has the whole world in his hands. All you have to do is to roll up the sleeves and you'll get it. And this is how children were educated. This is the value, the undercurrent that pervades all of culture. And it is different from ours. It's different from ours. I could go on with others, but the hour is getting late. I just want to conclude with this thought.
a phenomenon now in Jewish life called the Tshuva movement. People who've been far away and are beginning to look for their roots. There are many reasons for that. Probably the main reason is because a terrible disappointment in the breakdown of basic human values in our society today and the disappointment in the fruits of Western civilization, which maybe one day when an honest accounting profession will be made, red and black, will find that Western civilization is in the red, not in the black. In terms of the benefits we have derived, vis-a-vis -vis what we have given up and lost in the process. But also, I think, what is very important is that many people, many young people, are beginning to realize that these very values which Judaism projects is Nishat and maybe they are better for a meaningful human existence than this cherished autonomy and this cherished self-reliance on which they have been raised and which they found so terribly wanting in answering the ultimate and meaningful questions of their lives. They find a sense of support and meaningfulness in a structured setting, in a relationship with a commanding God, with a mitzvah, who gives us a mitzvah, all right? who find the infinite comfort in the knowledge that whether they succeed or fail, that there is a divine will and that there is a Baruch Hashem, and that there is a that there is a blessing even for the bad, because somewhere along the line everything meshes and has meaning. And maybe this is what is missing in contemporary society. That sense of certainty, that sense of structure, that sense of relating to something above and beyond this terribly lacking physical world in which we are so vulnerable, so vulnerable, we only remember we're vulnerable, when we get into a hospital, or we lie in the trenches. What will the doctor tell you if, if you're confronted with illness? What are my chances, doctor? As well, three, one and three, one and four. No, if you walk out in the street, get hit by a car. Life is so frail, so brittle, and without the concept of something bigger than all of us, something beyond this physical universe, someone there who is above and caring, in whose eyes I matter. Yes, God does care what I have for breakfast, whether it's kosher or it's bigger than that. Maybe this is what we're missing. I'm not advocating a rebellion of Americanism. America has very beautiful things, has been very good to Jews. But in the process, we have paid a heavy price. And the beauty of America is that part of the civilization is that it can tolerate our civilization. We have come a long way, baby, from the melting pot. And I think we are in a stage of, of thinking now when America in general recognizes the beauty of a multicultural society. 
that there's still enough that can pull us together as a nation, but there's enough left for each group to express itself in its own inimitable way. And Jews are beginning to understand this. And the more Jews that will understand this, the more will come back to Yiddishkeit. And the more that will come back to Yiddishkeit, the more grows our hope for the ultimate redemption in hell we may know. Amen. Thank you very much. Sociologists have referred to this group as the lost generation. 
from a New York perspective, I call it the Long Island generation. I mean, the people got themselves up and moved, not only away from the city, but away from what the city represented. Uh, in the Jewish community, the shtetl and its remnants, uh, both in the religious sense and also in the communal sense. Uh, of course, part of it was psychological. The shtetl was associated with oppression, with backwardness, with hardship, and anti-Semitism. Uh, the new world is a world of opportunity, opportunity educationally, financially, and the Sturm und Drang, the anxiety uh, to achieve Americanization, uh, particularly for the children, was enormous. We have to remember that in those days, the prominent sociological theory in America was the melting pot theory. The idea of being, what is a melting pot? Melting pot is you take a big pot, you make it very hot, and you throw in a lot of things. And what comes out is not like any one thing that went into it. In other words, everything contributes to it, but what comes out is something totally new. Like with recipe. You know, with recipe, about most makes a good recipe. She puts in a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I have a son who has the uh, the uncanny ability, you give them a dish and they'll tell you exactly what went into it. But most people don't. You know what I mean? But it, it tastes good. And then you ask the balabosta, what's the recipe? How did you put it together? Ah, this will this, ah, this will that, this will the other thing. That's a melting pot. The result is at least the sum total of the parts, if not more. But it's not any one of the things that came into it. And that was the dream, the American ideal, the melting pot, that every ethnic group, every religion, every culture made its contribution to the American uh, scene. Uh, but in the course of it, it is not right and very un-American to retain that original identity. You make your contribution, that's Now all goes into the melting pot, and out comes that glorious American with its own values, and you are living with a satisfaction that you made a contribution to it. But it wasn't particularly significant to remain Jewish, recognizably Jewish, or recognizably Italian, or recognizably Irish. It was embarrassing to some extent. And the dream was that the children will become real Americans. Uh, there were other factors for the crash, without any question. There, you didn't have the education facilities. When I started out, when I was young, and I started out in the rabbinate and public life, I was very critical of the leadership of the past generations, that they didn't build yeshivas, they didn't build day schools, they didn't build institutions that we have today. And when I got a little older, a little wiser, a little more experienced, I realized that they were facing enormous problems that made it very difficult for them. Uh, we didn't have the affluence that we had after World War II in the Jewish community. Um, the people, most the immigrants, uh, did not have the know-how and the skills and, and uh, the kind of 
understanding and education is necessary to build institutions, to build educational institutions. It wasn't that easy. Um, so we didn't have these institutions, so kids went to Talmud Torah. And I still remember when I started out in public life, uh, the Talmud Torah was still very good. I remember applying for a job, I don't remember if I got it or not, probably not, otherwise I would remember, in um, Talmud Torah, an afternoon school, where they had classes five days a week, Sunday morning, and every weekday from 3.30 till about 6.30 in the afternoon. It's almost as many hours as your modern Orthodox day school has in the Muda Kodesh. And I remember the top class was learning Gemara with Tosis. For those that have studied know what that means, it's very unusual. It was Talmud Torah. But nothing came out of it. And um, of course, um, it is very difficult to teach the Muda Kodesh after you've spent uh, all day till 3 30 or 4 o'clock in the public school. And um, I, I always suggested, although it may sound a little bit radical, uh, America, of course, there's freedom of religion, there's no question about it, and uh, religion's perspective. But uh, I've always submitted that the public school, in its essence, is almost as atheistic as the infamous communist state school, uh, public school in, in Russia. Now, in Russia, they were a little more uh, crass and a little more obvious. There's a story that uh, I heard from somebody that what they used to do with the little kids in the middle of the summer when it's very hot, and the kids were sitting there that was sweating away, there was no air conditioning, and the teacher said to the children, would you like ice cream? Yes, of course, my child doesn't like ice cream, especially that time of the year. And uh, they said, well, why don't you pray to God? Ice cream. They stopped praying to God and bought no ice cream for the game. And then they said, how about asking Comrade Stalin for ice cream? And they said, Comrade Stalin with ice cream, and the doors opened up and the trays with ice cream came in. Right? And this was deliberate you know, effort to uproot religious faith. Now, nothing like this ever happened in America. But, if you go to public school, and if you, until 4 o'clock, the, the essence of your education is that this happens because of this, and this happens because of this, and this happens because of this, and there is a cause, an actual cause for everything, by the time 4 o'clock comes around, there is no room for God anymore. Because everything has been explained already, naturally. And the God that is unnecessary is as impossible as a God that doesn't exist. So in a more subtle, insidious way, the basic secular assumption <coughs> that all of reality can be explained in natural terms is just as atheistic as the obvious attempt of a communist to offer religion. Um, they tell the story of the, um, the boy from Talmud Torah coming home, and the father asked him, he wasn't so terribly learned himself, but he wanted to know what the kid was learning in Talmud Torah. He says, what did you learn in Talmud Torah today? 
He said, I'll tell you an interesting, fascinating story. The Jews went out of Egypt, and as they're going out, they're near the Red Sea. They look around, and they see the Egyptians are pursuing them. Very great danger. So uh, Moses called out his engineers, and they built the pontoon bridge across the Red Sea, and the Jews crossed. And the moment they were across the, the, the water, and they saw the Egyptians were entering, coming on onto the bridge, he called out his dive bombers, and they bombed the bridges, and all the Egyptians were destroyed. The father was not exactly a Talmud but it didn't quite sound right to him. He said, are you sure that, that this is what the teacher told you, this is what happened? He gets a little grass and says, Dad, no. But if I would tell you what the teacher told me, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> you see? And this is the kind of sort of thing that the Talmud Torah was vis-a-vis -vis the teachings of all-day public school. And it was almost impossible adding on to the fact that the teachers that became teachers in those days were not the most competent teachers, to say the least, and certainly didn't have the language. And when I say language, I don't mean just uh, the ability to speak English, but the language, the contemporary language with which to communicate with these youngsters. So it was a pretty uh, uh, stacked, stacked battle against I wish they didn't have too much uh, chance. In addition, through the logistics of Jewish living in America, in those days it was very difficult. Shabbos was an enormous obstacle. I mean, today we have Kaufman, we have laws, and we have all kinds of things, and there are many places that don't work more than five days a week anyway. It's, we get to Hanetza, like we say, you know, have possibilities today didn't exist in those days. The sweatshops, old timers told me when they came here as young people after World War I, whatever, they used to take these jars in the sweatshop Friday afternoon when they told the boss, especially in the short days, you know, in the winter, we have to leave at Shabbos, they said you don't have to come back. And on Monday morning they had to look for another job. And there were people who literally went from shop to shop every week in a different place to work. That's what Shabbos meant. Cashless, it's not like today, you can come into some kind of a, a, a supermarket in Iowa where they've never seen a Jew in their lives, and you go through the shelves and you see you have this uh, cookie with an OU, and others with a, they don't even know what they're selling. And you can make a little meal for yourself somewhere out in the boy-boy there, and, 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 and survive. In those days, it wasn't possible. And he took along uh, some sorghum sandwiches or a salami. And if, you, if the guy was a chazza, he finished the salami the first night and nothing left for the rest of the week. Right? And it was very difficult. There's no place to go in, there's no place to do anything. And these things were very, very difficult. We can't appreciate today, with all the religious conveniences available to us, what that generation had to endure in order to preserve Shmirat HaMitzvah to, to, to observe them. So there were many, many things that conspired against, uh, against uh, the sort of thing. Of course, once you hit university, in those days, the, the conflict between religion and science and, 
and, and, and in new ideologies was very acute and the solutions were not really available. There were not people available who mastered both disciplines and were able to confront the issues in a meaningful way. People attended universities, they heard things they never heard before because of criticism, evolution, the geological age of the earth, and so on and so forth. That the, that, that the parents and the, uh, the religious teachers could not deal with at all. And all this, of course, pulled away a lot of Jews, young people. But even with all that, I wasn't totally satisfied in trying to analyze the situation. And what I want to present here tonight is what I call conflict in ethos questions. What I want to point out is that there are certain underlying uh, intellectual assumptions in American culture. And when I say American culture, I don't mean today's culture. I don't mean the bad culture the total breakdown of morals and ethical values. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the good America. It was the good type of the American dream, as they said. You know, the little house with the 2.3 children and then the dog and the two cars and everything is nice and fine, going to church on Sunday and, and being nice and, and family life, the kind of thing that uh, President Bush preached. Right? I'm talking about that America. And I want to show that taking this America, there are certain underlying cultural trends, I call ethos features of American life, that are not somehow that, that, that are different and opposed to some of the things that Judaism assumes. And therefore, it's very subtle. It's not something that is spelled out and written out in a textbook. But it's there, it's in the atmosphere, it's part of the general education, it's in the chinuch, and in everything that, that pervades the culture and the civilization. There are certain basic assumptions that are very much different. There are some that are very similar. You read some of the apologetic literature that was written in the earlier part of the century, a lot was written by Jews to show that Americanism and Judaism is Hainoha, it's the same thing. Right? And don't we have the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia? Freedom for all the citizens. I mean, we, we do have a lot in common. There's no question about it. I believe that the profound sympathy in the American people, in spite of the anti-Semitism and all the things that you hear and see, but in spite of that, there is a grassroots sympathy for Israel, and it is based on, I think, very profound cultural affinities between, between Americanism and Judaism. Uh, for instance, the value of a life. There are two cultures, I think, in spite of all the crime that happens, all the killing, but this is the bad America. I'm talking about the good America. The good America doesn't sleep and is glued to the television when a kid falls into a shack and people try to rescue it. There's only one other country in the world where this happens, that's in Israel, where people hang on the radio, one person is captive, one person might have gotten killed. In America, you have it too. In the good America, you have that. A tremendous appreciation of the value of a human life. And you share this. There is no other country in which there's such abhorrence for war 
and the fear of war because some people will get killed on earth. And you have it here and you have it in this. Not even the other democracies of the West, and European democracies. The idea that it is a system ruled by law and not by man. Yikov Hadin is the law, as the Talmud says. It's the law. It's not the people. You don't favor the poor, you don't favor the rich. Justice. Now we know it doesn't always work that way. It's true. But at least in the culture, there is that strong support for the concept of an objective system of justice without regards to rank and, 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 and family standing or what have you. And so on and so forth. I don't want to dwell too much on it. There, there is a lot of, of compatibility and similarity. But there are differences. On this I want to focus tonight. I want to show how these differences really affected the education of young people and how they willy-nilly found themselves torn between two different value assumptions living in the two civilizations of Americanism and Judaism. Uh, the, the politics, we start with the politics, the politics of the Western world uh, was shaped by liberalism, by liberalism. We do have such rare occurrences as a man like Hobbes, those that studied philosophy and political science, who believe that man requires a very strong and dominating government in order to keep people apart from each other, very reminiscent of the famous statement in Perka Obos, you should pray for the peace of the government. It wouldn't be for them. People would swallow each other alive. And this was, this theory, I'm sure, no, 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 don't worry, I don't need any, any more of it. Uh, Hobbes uh, developed the theory uh, without, I'm sure he didn't know Kirkovos, but he developed that theory. Uh, that people would literally kill each other. It was based on the concept of social contract and, and, and the state of nature and so on. I don't want to go into this. But essentially, he felt that all of sovereignty has to be uh, um, uh, given over to the sovereign. Now, that the people have to give up all their sovereignty, otherwise, they would kill each other in any dispute. And that becomes the government, and the government takes over and they rule. But that wasn't the dominant fear in the West. A man like John Locke, for instance, who believed in minimal government, that became the credo of liberalism. That government is only there to make sure that the criminals don't crime, and that the highways go, and so on and so forth, but the rest leave as much as possible to the people. All right? And that became the major credo of Western, of Western culture. Again, it doesn't work completely as time went on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Now I have to drink it because otherwise it's not nice. Thank you.
uh, it didn't work because as time went on and society became more complex, more and more regulations had to set in. And today, you have a network, as many political philosophers have pointed out, the average person today is more regulated than the serfs in the Middle Ages. The serfs did his job, he gave the balabos, the laws, whatever he had to give him, and then he went home and felt it. Here you go home, and anyway, then the government says, finished with it. You know? There are rules and regulations and licenses and stop signs and and then we did right. And there are hundreds in Washington, hundreds of the regulatory organizations that regulated this and regulated that. And 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 with white powers is one of the ongoing problems in, in government today where where a legislation has to be the, the, the borderline between vague legislation and specific legislation and the power given to, uh, uh, to uh, regulatory authorities in environment and in, 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 in trade and in all kinds of things. It's enormous. The, 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 the idea that we are really free in a democracy to do what we want is practically an illusion. I mean, there's no comparison to the dictatorship and Khalil uh, al but the Lachian dream of minimal government and a total, a total freedom that a person can express themselves anywhere they want really doesn't exist. And when it does exist, unfortunately, it's not so good. So, uh, but nevertheless, this idea of freedom is very persuasive and very uh, pervasive in Western civilization. And it's carried over into ethical concepts, into ethical concepts. A very few people in America knew about the Manuel Kant, the famous German philosopher. <coughs> but his basic premise in ethics, which became sort of the Bible of Western ethics, is the concept of autonomy. And if you hear any lecture today by a reform rabbi, you will hear, you are right, and this is nice, and it would be nice if Jews would be more Jewish, if we perform more mitzvahs, it's all right. But we believe in autonomy, and they are ready to sacrifice the discipline of Judaism for autonomy. And autonomy really is the root of Western ethics as formulated by Immanuel Kant, who said that if I do anything because anybody tells me to do it, I don't care whether it's the police or whether it's the government or whether it's God himself, it is not an ethical act. It is only ethical when I make that decision. And that, as I said, became very important. If you buttonhole anybody in the street and you ask him, what is more moral, what is more ethical, what is greater? If you follow the laws, because somebody legislated the laws, or because you, in the goodness of your heart, realize that this is the way you have to go, not to steal, not to kill, and do all these wonderful things. There, it's a knee-jerk reaction. There's no question that the answer will be, oh, person doesn't have a free will. That is the greater person. Without any question. And from this, we have some very nice uh, popular sayings. Like one, I think one of the most popular uh, uh, 
phrases in American living is, which I'm sure you have heard, and I'm sure you have used. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And this is rooted in their concept that there is a basic, a basic human dignity is freedom. And freedom means autonomy to make my own decisions. All right? And if you went into the little red schoolhouse, you would see it in action, beginning with nursery. You ever walk into a little nursery of, today I, I can't keep count anymore. In my days, it was kindergarten to first grade, and in nursery, kindergarten to first grade. Now it's pre-nursery, nursery, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, pre-A1. And pretty soon it's going to be prenatal. But anyway, so in any one of these, you know, little bits of what was sitting there, you simply walk in there, the teacher, now children, what are we going to do today? Oh, she knows darn well what they're going to do, and she's going to steal them what they're going to do. But they sit there and they vote. It looks like you vote. What are you going to do today? Huh? This is inculcated from early childhood. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. You make your own decisions. Now let's take a look at Judaism. In Judaism, we find a statement in the Talmud that sounds utterly absurd to Western ears. The Talmud says, Godel Greater is he who does something because he's commanded than the person who's not commanded. I know some will tell me it doesn't mean really greater, it means more reward. The portions say that if you're told to do something, there's a natural reaction. You don't want to do it, and therefore it's a little harder. And if in Sahara you get rewards for effort, there's more effort when you're commanded. I don't see that to be the whole statement. I'm profoundly convinced that what the sages meant was more than the question of reward. What they meant was that indeed, greater, from the religious point of view, greater is the person who is commanded to do something then one was not commanded, and this is quite evident from our Talmudic literature and from our commentators, that a person should do even those mitzvahs, which are seemingly so logical that the, in, in the words of the Talmud and the Midrash, that the Yetzirah and the Olam, even the, the evil inclination and the, the, the nations of the world concede that this is right, we should do it because God commanded us. There is a merit, bedavka, not to do it because I want to do it, because I recognize the greatness of this commandment, but to do it because God wants me to do it. And it's very interesting, when the Maral, the Maral Matar, who was a profound thinker and a prolific writer on Jewish thought, and certainly cannot be accused of obscurantism, was very much opposed to the concept of Tamil to find reasons for every mitzvah. There are two trends in Jewish history of Jewish thought. And he criticized Maimonides, who did believe in Tamil mitzvahs. And the whole issue is about uh, a certain mission in Barthas, the mission of the Akhan Sipri Gira that uh, if somebody prays that. 
And we have the law that if you want to dig, uh, the little birds, you have to send the mother away. And if somebody says, I'm doing this, God gave this mitzvah because he has compassion on the mother bird, mashtikin also silence him. And one of the explanations given the Talmud is because he's trying to develop a theory of divine mercy when he really has to do the mitzvah because it's a divine command. And the Maral roots himself in that statement. And he says, no, don't look for time on this. He found all kinds of explanations for Jewish suffering, for redemption, for exile. He was a philosopher by excellence. Mitzvahs don't find reason. And I think that the main motivation in the Maral not to look for reasons for mitzvahs is because the more reasons you have, the more you do it because you like it. Because if you have a reason, ah, it's good as that. Very nice, very nice. Then you do it because it's very nice. You shouldn't do it because it's very nice. You do it because God wants it to do it. Because the Hamitzvahs, the Hamitzvahs. Why? What's the sense of it? The sense is very simple. What is the ultimate religious experience in Judaism? Let's take the greatest Jew. What was he called? Now it's very difficult to find the greatest Jew and you're playing with fire if you take biblical figures and you want to say, who is the greatest? But I think it's pretty safe to say that most is rooted in the idea to stand subservient to the will of God. And it reflects in the education of Christ. Until four o'clock you are taught, you vote on everything. And here you come in and you can't explain everything. You know, it's even if you try to explain everything. Uh, I always say the best salesmen in the world cannot sell 613 products of one company. And I know when I was, uh, right now my congregation is uh, fairly observant and so on. I was in other communities as well and I felt like I was a traveling salesman with a little sample bag, you know, a sample attache. And I stand there and 
And I sell, and I sell, and I sell. You know, we're reminded of the story of the two salesmen who meet each other at the end of the day. And one salesman asked the other, how did you make out today? So he said, oh, I made lots of friends for the company. So the other one says, don't be upset, I didn't make any sales either. <laughs> A lot of friends for the company. And I found that I was making friends for the company, but I didn't make any sales. Occasionally, I don't say no sales, but occasionally. And I stand there, and I schwitz. Uh, by the sweat of my brow, and everybody sits there with their legs crossed, smoking their cigars. This, I like. This, I don't like. I don't like toast, so I start working on it. Oh, time is up, I gotta go home. You go home, and he doesn't like uh, likes one thing, he doesn't like another thing. That's what I've accomplished. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's a massive initial experience. There was a God, there was a Sinai, and there was a revelation. And I knew the will of God, and somewhere along the line, if one cannot connect with that concept, it's an impossibility. As I said, because you cannot sell every detail, every law and every detail. It's not a supermarket for which you go shopping, and some things you leave on the shelf, and some things you pull off the shelf. It can't work that way. It's got to be a commitment somewhere. And this is why our sages emphasized that the Jews said not Sabanishma, that there was a commitment. There is a living God and there is a living experience of Sinai. And the rest is Manishma. It's a lifelong, uh, nay, a history-long struggle to understand it all. But American culture does not, does not push this. Believe me, Every American does millions of things that he doesn't understand. Uh, I wish I would know how to fix a car and how a car runs properly. I would say myself a little bit. How many of you do? Maybe some. How many people know what an electrician does? How many people know what a doctor does? Somewhere along the line. Never thought. Right? We don't do everything that we know how it's done, what happens. But culturally, we are still brainwashed to the notion that whatever we do, we must know what we're doing. We're from Missouri, we've got to be shown, and we do that of our own free will, like And that one's content. And when a kid comes four o'clock in the Talmud, or even today in a day school, because a culture is all pervasive. It's what you read, it's what you see on television. It's, it's more than anything specifically taught in the classroom. That's why I call it the ethos, the underlying ethos. And you come and you tell the kid, well, this, I can't explain it. You've lost it. You can't explain it. And if you can't tell it, no sense. It's very hard. It's very difficult. Because there has to be some level of acceptance in, 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 in any ideology, certainly religion. We are told we are regulated. Right? We are regulated. We are regulated from cradle to grave. Uh, with great detail. The halacha is very specific and tells us what to do. Right? I always say, you know, the, the Gentiles have a mitzvah. 
to have a mitzvah on Christmas and a Christmas tree. Right? So what do you do in the Christmas tree? If they're very well to do, they buy a Christmas tree. If they're not so well to do, they buy a Christmas tree. If they're less well to do, if they have an old Christmas tree preserved from last year, they put it away somewhere in the garage, and it's in good condition. So not going to go see, you pull it out, put it out, and it's fine. I know in Washington they always make a big simmons, the president has a big day and pull it up with bullies and some ice. Just imagine if we would have such a mitzvah. Right? We would have, first of all, a whole mitzvah on the tree. And that would be a halacha, how tall it can be, it can't be over 20 hours because you can't see it, and how many branches it should have. And if you can put on electric light here, like regular candles. And a, and a tree hagozel, if it's stolen, it's not good. Really a tree hagozel, it's no good. With Christmas, it's mashor, with hashavonor. Imagine, imagine how we would treat such a thing. Agabonus, it was a terrific time. But this is it. Agabonus, you bring the bank with the agabonus, you can't forget the time. That's the level of regulation. On the other hand, how beautiful it is, how structured we are. How meaningful every religious experience is, every holiday. Sometimes a little extra work, it's true. And a lot of times it costs a little more money, but when you sit down, number five, you have, you have something. There's something to show your children, there's something to your grandchildren. It's, it's a lot of it. And this, uh, this acceptance of authority brings with it authority figures. Authority figures. Right? You have, first you have father and mother. I mean, I myself of a European background, I came here as a young person, very young person, and I heard for the first time, hey Jack, I turned around, who calls him? The son calls the father, hey Jack. I, I shudder, you know? I come into the class, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, you hear Mr. Smith, call the teacher by name in Europe? I heard of Herr Lehrer, Mr. Teacher. Hey. Authority figures, the whole American culture, the Constitution, the whole resentment against royalty and appointed status figures is part of the American Constitution. Right. And we have, we have Kibudabe, and we have Kibbut Rav and Rebbe. Of course, any authority has to come along with the, with the authority figures. And the American civilization suffers greatly from this, that no respect for authority figures because of the culture. And that undermines the whole authority. Because without authority figures, you can't have an authority. There have to be figures that represent that authority who are respected just for what they are. Not merely on the merit system. There are better ones, there are worse ones. There are better parents, there are worse parents. Kibbut Ava Eim and Shogunov doesn't make any difference whether your parents are the ideal parents that you would draw on a blueprint or whether they are the average parents or not the good parents. Kibbut Ava Eim, unless some very, very rare exceptions. Amen. And uh, respect for a teacher. I don't know, I remember when my kids were going to school, I used to come home with stories to the teacher. Who was right? The teacher was right. As soon as they left the room, we were just plots from your left to some of the stupid things that teacher may do. 
but not in front of the children. Children was a teacher. But rectify the problem. You were private lesson, you tell them individually what's right and wrong. But there has to be a dachavitz for the authority figure. And that has never really been the case in America. Never really been the case in America. And it's all part of that autonomous. The, the, the leader is, and why was a man like, like Truman so popular in those days? Because you could stand there and slap him on the back, or when his daughter was or got a bad criticism in the, when she was trying to sing, and then she got a bad critique in the newspapers, he got up and suddenly talked like, like any, any guy that had a father of his daughter was insulted. Ah, he's one of ours. Down to earth. And this is the, 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 the popularization or the deauthorization <laughs> of authority figures. It's all part of the problem. But us, they can't work that way. And it's very hard to instill children with a sense of their parents, for parents and for Abbey and for Abonnen. It's very hard, because the American culture isn't, isn't that. And this is what they get on television and in the comics and the newspapers and in the whole, in the whole environment of respect. I will, there are many others, but I don't want to take up that much time. I will just deal with one more. The American dream was based on the notion that you have your faith in your hand. And the old adage, I think it was Emerson, who said 80%, uh, 20% inspiration, 80% perspiration. The ideal, the frontier philosophy that you can make it if you just roll up your sleeves and you're prepared to work, you can make it in America. It was part of the open, wide open West, where people went to virgin lands, discovered gold mines, discovered fertile fields in which they could produce, established industry, the Horatio Alger type of story. You came, you come here with nothing, you start a little push cart, then you go out with a push cart, a Nicola Stickle, a pickle there, and then you go out, and from this you become a pickle empire, and become a millionaire. That was the American dream. It's wide open. And all you have to do, and the people who didn't make it, were looked upon as, either he was lazy, or stupid, or shnamah. I don't know exactly how to define the, the differences between them, but we somehow get the sense what it means, okay? I somehow said, what's the difference between a shlemiel and a shlemazel? Uh, if, if the waiter goes by and spills the soup on the guest, the waiter is the shlemiel and the guest is the shlemazel. Uh, but anyway, so there was this, this kind of, of sense that if you want to make it, you can make it. And one of the very popular phrases that was associated with this kind of concept is, God helps those who help themselves. Now, what does that really mean? What it really means is, come on, like the dollar bill, in God we trust. Who are you kidding? The dollar bill. You've got plenty of those. It's sort of, I wouldn't even call it lip service and hypocrisy. Because it's beautiful to have religious ceremonial. Oh, it's wonderful to start Congress with a prayer, sometimes by a priest, sometimes by a minister, sometimes by a 
rabbis. Now we've got uh, three, four different kinds of rabbis, so sometimes we can get more more hearing than uh, in other religions. We're beautifully split up so that we have plenty of uh, diversity. So this will be the subject of your next uh, lecture, I suppose. So uh, uh, it's very nice to christen a battleship while champagne and, and everybody I love when we're getting these uh, invocations. We ship with for glaze coin, you know, those understand these are going to Amen, and the amen is goodbye. Not an iota of religions remember that for that. And the Congress of Poland, they say everybody's their shtick and their shikras and their bounce checks and their, and their, their neighbors. Gorgeous, nothing happened, but everybody stood bowed and amen. It's nice, religion is a nice decoration. But deep down, there is that conviction, the frontier conviction that it is sweat equity. You do it. And if you don't do it, it's not because God didn't give you anything. It's not because you didn't have any muscle, whatever that means. It means you were lazy, stupid, with a muscle. Now, to some extent, this was historically smashed with the crash, when people of enormous talent <coughs> stood in line or participate in that program. What's the w, uh, WPA. WPA program? Actors, writers, intellectuals, highly skilled people were standing in line and, and digging ditches and, and repairing roads. So what said the push it, you only want? The shouts, what you want? Something the economy goes down. There are people now, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people out there looking for jobs and, and would work for half price and do anything. So stop. The recession. All right. So even from a secular point of view, this theory is a very poor theory, which doesn't hold water. But it was very pervasive in American culture, the racial algebra, the ability to make it yourself. You just go ahead and do it, and you can make it. And what do we teach the children? Let's go back to nursery, kindergarten, pre-A1, and all these beautiful little classes. What do you hear the teacher instilling to the children? Self-confidence. You can do it. If you only want, you can do it. Don't wait, well, not right in the beginning, but eventually don't wait for father and mother, don't wait for this, don't for that. You can do it. And psychologists will tell you this is a terrific thing. We don't argue with it. They have self-confidence self-reliance, you can do it. That is very strong, powerful element, value, and ethos, an undercurrent of an ethos in American civilization. What did we find in Judaism? How did you make out? Very well. Baruch Hashem. Thank God. You're all up your sleeve. You what? Baruch Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu, when he said his farewell speech, say for the Lord. Now one thing he was worried about, the Jews will come there to soil, they start building, they start creating, 
and they will say, Koche the Olsen, Yodi, Olsen is Kalachayat Hazer. They will say, it's my strength and my might that is all this. That was his greatest fear. That's the beginning of the end of religious commitment. I can do it myself. Probably the ultimate figure of this type of faith and trust was Yosef. And probably this is why he was called in our tradition the only one of the biblical figures who got the title Tzaddik. It's Abraham Avinu, it's Moshe Rabbeinu, it's David Hamela. Yosef is Yosef Hatzaddik. Just imagine. He is a man who is sold into slavery by his own brothers, right? In the house of Potiphar, of course, with his talents and his wisdom, he gained, he became the top executive in, in, in Potiphar's establishment. He is falsely accused of trying to entice Potiphar's wife. He's thrown in the dungeon by jail, innocently. And I assure you, the jails in those days were nothing comparable to a, a minimal security prison in Pennsylvania somewhere. No comparison. And then he becomes the boss of And the whole story with the Sahamashka, Sahofa, with the servants of Pharaoh, thrown to jail. They come, he's brought out of jail. A very liberal government takes a jailbird and uh, he becomes the vice king of, uh, of uh, <coughs> Egypt. Very good. He's called out, he has a tremendous chance. He has a skill. He interpreted dreams. He interpreted the dream of the Samashkin and the Sa'ofa. And now Pharaoh is in trouble. The greatest, most powerful man in, in, in Egypt who can make and break him. And he needs his services. And Power calls him in and he says, and he gets dressed and he gets a haircut and he shaves. He changes his prison clothes. I suppose they allow him to do that. And he comes in. What would anyone do coming in there? Before he would go to Power, he would go to a professional resume maker, and write up his resume, his biography. I have done this, and I have done that, and I have done the other thing, and I have a degree from here, and a degree from there, and come into power. Such a pile of documents. He comes in, yes, the power system. I heard about you, that you have a certain skill. What does Joseph say? Be it's not mine. Hashem Yamesh God will answer your questions. Now, you had this opportunity. You're the only applicant for the job. It's the top job in the country. Not me, Hashem. That is the very antithesis. And the contrast is beautifully des uh, described typologically. If you ever came across the famous essay, essay by the Rav, and the Lonely Man of Faith, when he describes the two Adams, 
the majestic Adam who, who goes out into space, who conquers universes, who gets control of the natural forces, who is proud and, and, and decisive and displays his great skills and his great wisdom and his great intellectual acumen. And then you have the, the, the Adam II, the existential man, who is worried, is he really capable, what is the purpose of his life, who stands bowed before the Lord, help me, I'm lonely, I cannot exist, what does, the, what does life mean altogether, what does the universe mean, what role do I play in this universe, how can I make it in this world without you, the true man of faith. And that was your you find such a crass difference between look at what is going on now elections in America elections in America you take a man who is supposed to become the leader of almost 300 million people and you put him on a platform and he stands there I am great and I am terrific and I can do the job for you with the other one is a nah the other one is incompetent Of course, that's the bad America. But it's a result of the good America. Oh, we like him. He shows self-confidence. He knows what he's doing. Do you think anyone knows what they're doing? Do you know anyone has the answers to the dilemma of America? God says the health, whoever wins that they'll find out something at least. Uh, this Perot, whatever his name is, at least he's honest. He admits he knows nothing at this point. I think people appreciate that. Because deep down they know that nobody knows nothing. He is at least honest enough to admit that he doesn't know anything. But you have to parade as if it's all in your hand. Man has the whole world in his hand. All you have to do is to roll up the sleeves and you'll get it. And this is how children were educated. This is the value, the undercurrent that pervades all of culture. And it is different from ours. I could go on with others, but the hour is getting late. I just want to conclude with this thought. I believe we have a phenomenon now in Jewish life called the Tudor movement. People who've been far away and are beginning to look for their roots. There are many reasons for that. Probably the main reason is with a terrible disappointment in the breakdown of basic human values in our society today, and the disappointment in the fruits of Western civilization, which may be one day when an honest accounting profession will be made, red and black, will find that Western civilization is in the red, not in the black. In terms of the benefits we have derived, vis-a-vis -vis what we have given up and lost in the process. But also, I think, what is very important is that many people, many young people, are beginning to realize that these very values which Judaism projects and maybe they are better for a meaningful human existence than this cherished autonomy and this cherished self-reliance on which they have been raised and which they found so terribly wanting 
in answering the ultimate and meaningful questions of our lives. They find a sense of support and meaningfulness, bedakka, in a structured setting, in a relationship with a commanding God, with a mitzvah, who gives us a mitzvah, all right? who finds the infinite comfort in the knowledge that whether they succeed or fail, that there is a divine will, and that there is a Bar Hashem, and that there is a blessing even for the bad, because somewhere along the line everything meshes and has meaning. And maybe this is what is missing in contemporary society. That sense of certainty, that sense of structure, that sense of relating to something above and beyond this terribly lacking physical world in which we are so vulnerable, so vulnerable. We only remember we're vulnerable when we get to a hospital or we line the trenches. What will the doctor tell you if, if you're confronted with illness? What are my chances, doctor? As well, three, one and three, one and four. No, you can walk out in the street and get it by a car. Life is so frail, so brittle, and without the concept of something bigger than all of us, something beyond this physical universe, someone there who is above and caring, in whose eyes I matter. Yes, God does care what I have for breakfast, whether it's kosher, it's bigger than that. Maybe this is what we're missing. I'm not advocating a rebellion of Americanism. America has very beautiful things, has been very good to Jews. But in the process, we have paid a heavy price. And the beauty of America is that part of the civilization is that it can tolerate our civilization. We have come a long way, baby, from the melting pot. I think we are in the stage of, of thinking now when America in general recognizes the beauty of a multicultural society, that there is still enough that can pull us together as a nation, but there is enough left for each group to express itself in its own inimitable way. And Jews are beginning to understand this. And the more Jews that will understand this, the more we'll come back to Yiddishkeit. And the more that we'll come back to Yiddishkeit, the more grows our hope for the ultimate redemption in hell we may know. Amen. Thank you very much. is 
the low growism of American civilization. Um, until the Sputnik went up in the air, there was no real uh, appreciation of education in America. And even when it arrived finally in America, the appreciation was for its practical value. You see the commercials on television. Don't drop out of school. You won't get a good job. But the idea, the Jewish idea of total Lishmore, that there is a higher value, which to some extent Western culture had at one time, but specifically in America was lost, and maybe also because of the frontier. The pragmatism, this, it's not coincidental that pragmatism is the native philosophy of America. The idea of what works. Sociological 
see it in America with the melting pot theory. The idea being, what is a melting pot? Melting pot is you take a big pot, you make it very hot, and you throw in a lot of things. And what comes out is not like any one thing that went into it. In other words, everything contributes to it, but what comes out is something totally new. Like a good recipe. You know, a good recipe about what can make a good recipe. She puts in a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I have a son who has the, uh, the uncanny ability. You give him a dish and he'll tell you exactly what went into it. But most people don't. You know what I mean? But it, it tastes good. And then you ask the bottle, what's the, what's the recipe? How did you put it together? Oh, this will do it, this will that, this will the other thing. That's a melting pot. The result is at least the sum total of the part, if not more. But it's not any one of the things that came into it. And that's what the dream, the American ideal of the melting pot is. That every ethnic group, every religion, every culture make its contribution to the American uh, scene. Uh, but in the course of it, it is not right and very un-American to retain that original identity. You make your contribution, that's occurred. Now, all goes into the melting pot and out comes that glorious America with its own values. And you are living with the satisfaction that you made a contribution to it. But it wasn't particularly significant to remain Jewish, recognizably Jewish, or recognizably Italian, or recognizably Irish, it was embarrassing to some extent. And the dream was that the children will become real Americans. Uh, there were other factors for the crash, without any question. There, we didn't have the education facilities. When I started out, when I was young, and I started out in the rabbinate and public life, I was very critical of the leadership of the past generations, that they didn't build yeshivas, they didn't build day schools, they didn't build institutions that we have today. And when I got a little older, a little wiser, a little more experienced, I realized that they were facing enormous problems that made it very difficult for us. Uh, we didn't have the affluence that we had after World War II in the Jewish community. Um, the people, mostly immigrants, uh, did not have the know-how and the skills and, and uh, the kind of uh, understanding